Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So let's do a quick recap of the first 55 chapters of Isaiah. Are you ready? <laughs> it's important for the cycle. I'm not going to give you the details. You can go back. We record every message that are online for free. You can go back and watch all the ones you want. Uh, but it's important to understand how the chapters have been broken up in what we've been studying. Isaiah 1 through 39 was the story of Judah and Assyria. And the issue was, are you going to trust the Lord to deliver you from your enemies, or are you going to make alliances with your enemies to get you out of trouble? From Isaiah 40 to 55, which is where we were last week, the tone shifts from Judah and Assyria to Babylon and the exile that is coming their way because they didn't learn their lesson with Assyria. God delivered them, but their hearts were still set on making, alliance, making alliances with the kingdoms of this world that, that God had already established for 39 chapters are under judgment. This world and its systems, the, the nations, the governments, they're under God's judgment, so don't make alliances with them. That was the message of the first 39 chapters. Then from 40 to 55, which is where we ended two weeks ago, it's all about what happens when you don't listen to the Lord. He brings in pain, suffering for the people of God, Israel. That meant go, losing their homes, going away into exile and Babylon, and having to live as slaves, just like they started off in Egypt. But there was hope at the end of those sections, right around 53, 54, 55. Isaiah starts telling the people, listen, while you're in exile, there is still hope because God hasn't forgotten you. You're in exile not because he has forsaken you, you're in exile because he's trying to correct you. And there's a way where he disciplines because he loves and he's not disciplining just because he's a mean God and he, he enjoys punishing his kids. He's trying to bring correction and there will be hope after that correction and the hope is that he's gonna send this king from Persia named Cyrus to set you free. You're gonna go home to your homeland and he's gonna send a servant who's going to redeem you of your sin, to blot out your transgressions, the prophet says. So as we venture into 56 through 66, the last 10 chapters are written to a people who are now home, but are waiting for this promised Messiah to arrive. So 55 starts off with this question, what do you do while you're waiting? 
How should God's people live when the promise is down the road and we don't know how long it's gonna take to get here? How should we order our lives? What should we be doing? What should we spend our time with? What should we spend our money on? What should get our affections? How should we be living while we're waiting for his arrival? And that's why I wanted these chapters set during Advent. Because Advent is a Latin word that means arrival. And so these chapters are split up in a way, and I'll go to this, I'll arrange how these 10 chapters are arranged in just a second and how we're gonna study them. But they're written to a people who are sitting here waiting for the first advent to arrive, the first arrival of Jesus. But it's not only that. The last 10 chapters are structured in a really poetic way that takes us on a journey. From 55 to 59, which is what we're gonna study today, it's all about the people of God, Israel, waiting for the arrival of Jesus, okay? So we've got a period of waiting, that's 55 through 56 through 59, and then we get to chapter 60 and 61, and those chapters are the arrival. Hey, Jesus is here. In fact, 61 is what Jesus quoted when he walked into the temple, unrolled the Isaiah scroll, and said, hey, I'm the guy you've been waiting for. My, that was my paraphrase. So 56 through 59 is the waiting, the 500 year period from when they returned to Babylon until Jesus shows up. 60 and 61 are the arrival, the first arrival of Jesus. And then 62 through 65 is another description of a people in waiting. Now who do you think those people in waiting are? That's us. A period of waiting, Jesus' first advent, a period of waiting, and then 65 through 66 is the declaration that Jesus has come again and he is here to establish his new heaven and his new earth. So this is why we're studying the last 10 chapters for Advent because they, they run through this cycle of waiting, he's here. Now we're waiting again and he will arrive. So what we can learn from a people in waiting can help us steer away from the things that set them up for failure when, the, when Jesus arrived the first time. Because we're told that when he showed up, Israel missed their visitation. They missed it. Because that period of waiting was wasted. It lasted 500 years, and at some point they just said, well, let's just go back to our idols. Let's just go back to the way things used to be. And Jesus shows up, and nobody was ready for it. And now we're given in God's grace this other period of waiting that's been 2,000 years now and people are starting to go, well maybe we should, maybe we should get a little softer on some of the issues in here so we can kind of become more of uh, accustomed to the culture. Everything's are changing so much. Maybe we should stop holding on to some of the things that we've all historically held on. Maybe we should, should no, 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 that is a bad idea. Don't do that, because he's coming. Well, he's, it's been so long, I know it's been so long. He's making it long because he's testing his people. That's why we're given the period of waiting. The period of waiting is a gift because what it does is it exposes inside of you the things that you were convinced weren't in there. It's the reason why you shouldn't allow yourself to have whatever you want right now because in a year from now, that won't be what you want. So give yourself a year 
And then you'll see that that's not really what you wanted anyway. You wanted something else. And then that thing won't be what you needed anyway. And so the waiting exposes in your heart that your affections are stirred for things that he doesn't want for you. You follow? All right, so let's do this. Let's go to Isaiah 56, and let's read what, what the prophet is telling us about how to live in waiting. Isaiah 56, verse one. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. I'll pause right there, because these first two verses are the heartbeat of the last 10 chapters. What are people in waiting supposed to be filling their time with? How do the people of God, how does Israel in that 500 year period, how do they prepare for the arrival of Jesus? They keep justice, they do righteousness, and they keep the Sabbath. Now the first two I'm I'm tracking with, I I get it. Supposed to keep justice, I'm supposed to practice righteousness. But the Sabbath, that doesn't seem like it fits with the other two. Well, there's a lot of commentary on how these three things fit together, but here's how I see it. I view justice as the relationship we have towards others. And we've talked about the Hebrew word for justice as we went through the entire book of Isaiah. And it's this concept of making sure that in your relationship with other people, you are not preferring one person over someone else in regards to justice. I'm not going to turn my head to this person's sin because I like them more or I want them to like me more, but harshly judge this person's sin because I really don't care what they think about me. Justice is giving across the board equal attention to all man without trying to manipulate relationships so that you can get or so that you can be seen. So I see justice as a word that describes how we relate to one another. I see righteousness as a word that would describe, in a very broad sense, our relationship with God. As you stand before a holy God, how are you viewed? Are you guilty or are you free? Are you declared righteous because of your faith in him or are you unrighteous? So we've got justice and we've got righteousness and both of these have our words that describe our relationship with him and our relationship with others and then we have this word Sabbath. And I'm convinced that here in this context, Sabbath is not just talking about the day of rest where we don't work. I think it's using that concept in a much broader sense 
that Hebrews touches on in chapter four. Hebrews four, we don't have, I didn't put this up on the screen, but just listen. Hebrews four, one through three essentially says the promise of entering his rest still stands. So let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter into that rest. What is the rest that the writer of Hebrews is talking about? Is he talking about not doing work on Sunday? Is he talking about entering into the Holy Land? No, he says that Joshua did that with the people of Israel and they didn't enter into rest. So what is the rest that God is inviting his people into? The rest he's inviting us into by faith is you don't have to work your salvation. All of the works that were set up in the law to make you righteous before a holy God. You gotta get that right lamb, you gotta slaughter it, you gotta do the sacrifice, it's gotta be the right priest, it's gotta be the right time of year, it's gotta be the right blood in the right place. All of that work you can now rest from because your heavenly father sent his son as the great high priest and sacrifice to make all of those things accomplished. So rest from doing that work. So, how does Sabbath relate to righteousness and justice? It means that I am no longer trying to declare my righteousness because of the things that I did with other brothers and sisters in justice. God, God, look at what I did for you. Look at, look at what I, 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 I spent my time with. Look at how much I gave. Look at, look at where I went on Sunday. Look at how much I gave of myself for those other people. Do you love me now? Look at what I've done for you. Can you please now declare me not guilty? I think Isaiah is looking forward to a time that Hebrews is writing about, writing about where he says rest from that. Rest from the practice of justice because God already loves you. He, you don't have to practice justice to get him to love you. He already loves you. Rest from living a righteous life because he's already declared you righteous. And this gets down to motivations. So am I saying that you don't have to live a righteous life? No. I'm saying you don't have to live a righteous life to get him to declare you righteous. You now live a righteous life because you are already righteous. Do you see the difference? The difference seems small, but it's as wide as the Grand Canyon because it drives down to motivations. One says, I'm doing this to get something from my father. The other says, I'm doing this because I already received it from my father. And it is just a natural overflow. I can't help but to be this because he was this for me. Do you see the difference? It's big. So what in the first two verses is the prophet telling awaiting people to do? He's telling awaiting people to live godly lives and rest in the confidence that God has worked for them. Let's continue, verse three. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Oh, this is interesting. Okay, now we've started talking about the foreigners who are not allowed in God's presence. It gets even weirder. 
And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. What is a eunuch? A eunuch is a man who was called to service in the kingdom, but you want to make sure that that man is not having relations with the queen, and so you remove his ability to have relationships with the queen. You follow? Those people were explicitly instructed in Deuteronomy 23.1 that they are not allowed in the presence of the Lord because you cannot change your outward appearance and come before the Lord. He made you that way, and when you saw fit to change the way he made you, you made yourself unfit to come before the Lord. So we're talking about a period of waiting the people in waiting are supposed to live godly lives. They're supposed to rest in the confidence of God. And now the prophet turns to these foreigners. And he's saying in verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, for all of you who rest in having to do the work of the Lord, you trust that he already did the work for you, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. Verse 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Are you kidding me? The people who are not even allowed in God's presence are now, because of them keeping the Sabbath, allowed to get a better inheritance than the sons and the daughters? You see how highly offensive this was? Verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burning offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Oh, he's got the Bible reading it to him. That's funny. <laughs> I thought he was listening to a different message from me. I was like, this one's not good. I'm going to go back and listen to a different one. <laughs> That's funny. So Isaiah turns to the foreigners and he makes this declaration that you guys, the ones who have traditionally told because you can't keep the covenant, you're not allowed in. You're now allow allowed in. And he's, he's speaking to the period of time before Jesus arrives and he's, he's addressing the Israelites and he's saying, hey, get ready because the foreigners are coming in. Cornelius, he's coming in. Gentiles, coming in. I'm gonna raise up one of you from Israel to go out into the land and only preach to the Gentiles. And they're gonna glorify my holy mountain. And they're gonna worship my name in a way that none of my people have ever done. And I'm looking at a room filled with people fulfilling this prophecy right now. So what is Isaiah telling to awaiting people? You need to get ready for people who are not like you, the outcasts, to start coming to saving faith. What is he saying to the people of God? Get over yourself because not everyone who comes in the doors will look like you and think like you and talk like you. But I called them, not you. So start living 
with a little bit of grace because all of you are honoring the Sabbath, rest because all of you are not trying to work your salvation. I did it for you and I did it for them and I like that neither one of you look like each other. I like that you come from different backgrounds and I have redeemed both of you. So get over yourself and your pride because what he's doing is bigger than the way you would do it. Let's go to verse nine. At this point, the prophet anticipates that the people in waiting are not gonna like what God has to say. They're not gonna like the idea that foreigners are gonna start coming in. And so he turns to speak to a people that he knows are going to increasingly become more unfaithful. Verse nine, it says, all you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. The Lord is calling in the beasts from the nations. Come in and devour my people because his watchmen, they're blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. They're dreaming. They're lying down. They're loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine, let me fill myself with strong drink, and tomorrow we will be like this day, great beyond measure. Who's he talking to here? He's, he's, He's talking to Israel. The waiting Israel will grow lazy, and they will turn to wine, and they will turn to slumber their own leaders will be more interested in building their own kingdoms than God's. This, was the, this is the world that Jesus was birthed into. 57.1, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away and nobody understands for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace and they rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. That's so fascinating. Because the world will get so bad in this culture that when a righteous man dies, not a single person will even notice. Nobody will even care when the righteous die because everyone's hearts will be turned to wickedness. Verse three, but you draw near sons of the sorcerers, offspring of the adulterer and loose women, Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree? You who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? A people in waiting have now built altars on the tops of the mountains. They don't go sacrifice to the Lord because it's easier to just walk up the mountain three, three miles from where I live than travel 20 miles down to Jerusalem to worship. I'd rather just have worship my own way. I don't want to go through the, the, oh, it's just so difficult to get up in the morning, get everyone ready and get to the, oh, we, can we just watch it on TV? A whole culture of people saying, what, is, what, what do we need to do to make my life more comfortable? Well, I, I've, I've gotten, I, I, I'm, now, I'm now pregnant and, and I don't want it because it's gonna be uncomfortable, so let's just abort the child. Let's murder the child on the altar of comfort. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion 
then they are your lot to them. You have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. So you're bringing offerings to your idols. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain, you have set your bed. And there you went up to sacrifice. You, you even, you're camping out near the places of false worship. Verse eight, behind the door and the doorpost, you've set up your memorial for deserting me. You've uncovered your bed. You've gone up to it. You made it wide. You made a covenant with yourselves, for yourselves, with them. Boy, you love your bed and you love looking at nakedness. Just a reminder, this is the 500 years before Jesus showed up. He's not talking about now, although (laughs) I love my bed. I don't have time to serve him because I love my bed. I don't have time for an intimate relationship with my wife because I love pornography. You follow where he's going with this? In a period of waiting, the people just say, he's not coming, so I guess we'll just do whatever we want to do. Verse 9, you journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent them down even to hell. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me? did not lay it to heart. Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? You found all kinds of new ways to strengthen yourself. You gave yourself to fitness. You gave yourself to work. You gave yourself to music. You gave yourself to school. You gave yourself to someone else just so you wouldn't be faint You were afraid and had dread about everything and you would lie about it. You couldn't couldn't even remember me. You had lied so many different ways. Verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So what do the people in waiting turn to? Corruption, drunkenness, murder, sorcery, gossip, comfort, worship, sexuality. See, this is why I said at the beginning that God makes his people wait because they had just come back from Babylon and we would have all said, all right, they finally learned their lesson. And you read in Nehemiah, and they're rebuilding the wall. Things look good. Give it 300 years and see where they are. Because the affections of the, Lord, of the Lord don't stir them. They don't really care for the things of God over a long haul. They care for the things of God that profit them when it profits them. But if it doesn't profit them, if it requires of them, they're not interested. This is the reason why Advent is such a wonderful gift because it exposes inside of us the things that we need to repent of and this is what awaiting people should be doing. Awaiting people should be spending their time repenting, turning. And 57, 14 through 21 is a call to repentance. It's a finishing of that repentance. But the repentance call in 2014 through 21 is a repentance call to the things that you turn to in this world 
oh man, I'm turning to, to sexuality, to sorcery, to gossip. But what about the things that we, that we how, how about the things that we treat uh, in God's hands? Like, uh, okay, I'm giving my heart away to this other stuff, but, but what happens um, when I turn to the Lord and I still try to keep this other life too? Rather than just giving my heart to the Lord and being completely sold out to him and allowing him to fan the flame, I'm walking this line and then half of me wants this and half of me wants this. This other half of me is what we just covered in 57, this fleshly desire, this, this carnal nature, this old man that we turn back to, oh, I want this stuff, I want this stuff, I want this stuff. But then when you, when you do that on a regular basis, it starts infiltrating into your worship. And then all of a sudden, the things that you do for the Lord, fasting, worship, studying his word. None of that comes from a pure heart because over here, the pond is being poisoned. And that's where we go in 58. So go to 58 verse one. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to me, excuse me, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. So the chapter begins with this loud cry. Tell the people the truth. What is the truth? You're selfish. You're manipulating the things I gave you to approach me for your own gain. Where are you getting that from? You're getting it from over here. You camped out on the top of a mountain close to idol worship, and that idol worship is now affecting your worship when you come before me. You can't come before me like you do these other idols. I'm different, I'm holy, I'm separate. I'm not like that, I'm the only God. You don't treat me like you treat them. So when you do feel this sense of conviction and you show up on Sunday to worship, your worship is now influenced and informed by the way the world tells you your worship should be influenced and informed. And now suddenly the things that he commanded of us, we don't have the courage to do or the, we don't even have the energy to do because we've given ourselves to all the things of the world and we've grown faint all in this period of waiting. Verse two, it says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. Oh, well, that's good. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Okay, we're, we're doing good. That seems good. They're trying to draw near and they cry out. Verse three, why, why have we fasted? But you haven't seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves, Lord? but you take no knowledge of it. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all of your workers. What are we talking about here? We're talking about that 500 year period leading up right to when Jesus shows up. And he shows up to an entire culture saturated with Pharisees and Sadducees who've been infiltrated by the idolatrous worship of their fathers. And it's influencing their worship today to the point where now when they set up the law, they're demanding things of people that God never demanded of them. They're going further than God's word in the name of God, but it's just for manipulation. So Isaiah is looking at these Pharisees. Verse four, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such, is such the fast that I chose? In other words, is this the fast that I asked of you? 
a day for a person to humble himself? Isn't it, isn't it what I ask of you to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Only outward expressions but no real heart intent. Is not this the fast that I chose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Isn't that really what I wanted you to do when I said fast? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you shall see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Mm. Not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Not to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that guy or that girl. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call, and the Lord will answer, and you shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the spirit, speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then you, excuse me, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail and your ancient ruins shall not, excuse me, shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So you've got a people in waiting who are seeking the Lord but only for their personal gain. They're observing things like prayer and fasting and worship, but it's not to lift him high. It's to manipulate him to get what they want. There's no humility. There's only fake expressions of devotion designed to make everyone feel um, more, uh, um, make everyone else feel inferior. I'm superior to you because, well, I, I just got off of a fast. Can't you tell by my fasting face? <laughs> I just finished doing this. I just got off of this and I just returned from here. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do that anymore. I only do this. None of those are an example of a heart that's been transformed, it's a representation. Those who blow that trumpet, it's a, it's a representation of you trying to manipulate God and posture yourself as better and superior to everyone else. If you, the implication being, if you don't do this, you're inferior to me. So how do we, how do we understand that, that there are things that God's called us to. We're supposed to be giving ourselves. We're supposed to be pouring ourselves out like a drink offering. We're supposed to be getting this place where we're following Christ and suffering, and we're gonna be suffering. Where's this place where we're supposed to re just experience the joy and the peace of walking with our King. We're supposed to be studying His Word and devouring it night and day. 
It's supposed to be like a lamp onto our feet. How can it be a lamp if we don't even know what it is? We're supposed to be doing these things, but there's a difference between giving yourself to these things and that being your true motivation because I'm doing it because I love him, because what he has done for me and doing it as a t-shirt that you wear so others see that you're doing it. See the difference? And we would want to just, well, we throw one away so we don't do the other. That's not how it works. There are ways to be obedient and there are ways to look obedient. And the Lord knows your heart. You're not fooling him. You might be fooling others, although pretty sharp these days. When you start blowing your own trumpet, we're like, uh, okay, here he goes again. What haven't you accomplished? You are the most humble man you've ever met. <laughs> the Lord is not fooled. And he's calling out the people of God in waiting for this kind of behavior. And so what is he saying? He's saying that waiting people should be letting God work through them and not manipulating God to work for them. It doesn't get any better because sin starts increasing not just in the people of God but across the entire world in 59. Go to 59 verse one. It says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ears dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, is God the God of only Israel or is God the God of the entire world? God's the God of the entire world, whether you even believe if he's real or not. He's God over this earth because he made it. So he's speaking to his people, but he's also speaking to the world. The entire world, every person who was born was conceived in iniquity and was born with a separation because of sin between you and your God. And your sins have hidden your face from him. Verse three, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity and your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. We're seeing sin kind of permeate out of the people of God and, and just, just fester out in the world in this period of waiting. No one enters ju suit justly. The courts are corrupt. The government is corrupt. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs or snake eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, the viper is hatched. This doesn't matter. It's like whack-a-mole everywhere you, you Put one down, two more pop up over here. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with which they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet, they run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Again, this is before Jesus showed up the first time. You just see how Verse eight, the way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. The righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. 
We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. It's the middle of the day. Things are as bright as they possibly be, but we're a people who are so blind we can't see the truth. Those in full vigor, they're walking around like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far away from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. What happens in, to the world in a period of waiting? Sin grows fruit, lies, unjust laws, manipulation, running to evil, growling and arguing, oppression. In a period of waiting, sin only increases worldwide. Now at this point where you're kind of thinking like, oh man, like, oof. I kind of came this morning for like a happy message. Like are things gonna get better? Things look bleak. And we're just like the first 500 years before Jesus showed up. Things look really dark. Is there any hope? We should jump down to verse 16. What did the Lord do when he looked across this land? His people have given themselves to idolatry. His people are coming to him with false worship. And sin is spreading across the entire world world. It's only increasing in this period. What does the Lord do? Verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. So what did the Lord do? Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Does that sound familiar? He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak and according to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, so the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, that my spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Now chapter breaks are weird in the Old Testament. There's one here that shouldn't be here. Go to 60 verse one. What's the response to Jesus putting on his helmet of salvation and showing up like a rushing wind and putting the word of God in the mouths of his people? Arise and shine, folks, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and it did, and it does. 
Thick darkness for all the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Pause right there because Isaiah sees a time of pitch black darkness and the Lord shows up. He cracks the darkness explodes with light as a baby in a manger. And that moment where the entire world wants nothing to do with God, even his own people, in a tiny little manger in Bethlehem, a baby was born. And this child is the invitation for what we read in Isaiah chapter nine For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulders, not the other way around. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Will do what? Will send the servant at the right time to End the darkness in the world and in the hearts of the people. In your life, ending the darkness by bringing marvelous light. So in this period of waiting we just talked about, there was a substantial amount of work that should have been done by Israel before the first advent that was not accomplished, and you're already starting to see the parallels with how sin replays the same song over and over and over again, and you're reading this and you're like, is this, is this 2,500 years ago or is this today? You're gonna, you're gonna see this again after we get to 62, but starting in 60 and 61, which we'll start covering next week, is the invitation of the celebration. There was work to be done in the Advent, before Jesus' first arrival. And folks, there is work to be done in this advent. What is the work to be done? The work to be done is to repent, to get over the fact that people will start coming to saving faith that don't look like you, who don't talk like you. The work is to stop mixing your worship for Jesus with the culture of this world. To stop letting the world disciple you in the things of God and then bringing that into the house of the Lord and letting it inform the way that you worship Jesus. That's the work to be done. To repent of the way we have been walking and to turn to the Lord. Why? Because he showed up once and he will come again. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.